If you're a music buff, 1962 was kind of a, a big year. It was a big deal. 1962 was the year that the Rolling, Stone, Rolling Stones were formed. And it was also the year that the Beatles re released their first album. Somehow, after all these years, the Rolling Stones are still touring. They're still releasing albums. But the Beatles lasted just eight years. It's curious to me the final track that the Beatles recorded, though. Do you know what it was? Uh, their last album, Let It Be, came out a month after, they, after their breakup. But Let It Be wasn't the last song that they recorded. Long and Winding Road was another important uh, single on that album. That also wasn't the last song that they recorded. The last song that they recorded was a song written by George Harrison called I, Me, Mine. And it was, seems to be quite clearly a commentary on the selfishness and the, the, the relational problems that were breaking up the band. Uh, I, Me, Mine, uh, it, it's, not a, it's not a favorite, uh, it's not, it's not a, it wasn't a big single, but uh, it speaks of that selfishness that George Harrison witnessed. The lyrics go like this. All I can hear, I, me, mine, I, me, mine, I, me, mine. Even those tears, I, me, mine, I, me, mine, I, me, mine. No one's frightened of playing it, everyone's saying it, flowing more freely than wine all through your life, I, me, mine. I, me, mine destroys rock bands, <laughs> but I, me, mine also wrecks marriages. It makes churches toxic places for people to be. I, me, mine ruins companies. It gets at uh, the heart of what would otherwise tie us together as humans and rips us apart. Harrison could see what it was doing to his dream. He could see what it was doing to his band, but Diagnosing it didn't do anything to solve the problem. Uh, writing a song about it didn't do anything to solve the problem. And so the band split apart. I wonder if you see the impact of I, Me, Mine in your life. I wonder if you see it at work in your relationships. Does it affect your moods? Does it get in the way of some of your dreams and plans? Do you see the effects of I, me, mine in your, in your life? In, in today's passage, Jesus gives us, I believe, a glimpse into a life set free from I, me, mine. Gives us an understanding of how someone can be free from that selfishness that would break, break and, and disrupt uh, the relationships that are so important to us. And he shows us not only how to break free from I, me, mine, but he shows us a life set free to live to the glory of God. And he, as he does that, he shows us that a life set free from I, me, mine has a different audience, has a different timetable, and it has different words. And so we're going to look at those three things, a, a different audience, different timetable, and different words. As we come to John chapter 7, it's the last uh, passage in this series that we've been in in John's Gospel. 
And uh, so if you, if you have your Bibles today, I'd encourage you to turn with me to uh, John chapter 7, uh, and I'm going to read from verses 1 to 18. John chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come. Your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He's a good man. Others said, He's, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. This is the word of God. Now let's start by considering the different audience that I, I mentioned. People who break free from I, me, mine are content with obscurity. They've learned to stop living for people's attention, and so they are content to serve when the spotlight's not on them. They're content with obscurity. And they, they, they are that way because they have a different audience. This comes out, first of all, with Jesus' interaction with his brothers. In verse 1, we learn Jesus has chosen to limit his movement. He's, instead of going into the big city, uh, he has chosen for a time to limit his movement to the rural countryside of Galilee. He's doing that because the authorities are seeking to kill him in Jerusalem. Now the time will come when Jesus will set his face to Jerusalem. It'll be another year before that'll take place. But when it does, Jesus will do so purposely and with a, with a sense of, of intention and, and, and courage that he's going there knowing that Death awaits him, knowing that the cross awaits him. But he knows that this isn't his time for that. He has a mission that's been given to him by the Father, and he's committed to fulfilling that mission. So for now, he chooses obscurity for the sake of the mission that the Father has given him. The brothers, though, don't get that. For them, this just doesn't fit with how they think. Right now is a feast of booths or uh, the Feast of Sukkot. It was, it was one of the three uh, most important festivals in the life of Israel. And it was a time when 
every male had to appear at the temple for this great celebration of harvest. The people would come together and they would celebrate God's goodness and bringing in the harvest. They, they would rejoice in what God had provided for them agriculturally. But they would also uh, uh, live and, and eat and dine and celebrate in these booths. And, and you can see them uh, throughout our neighborhoods when uh, the fall arrives, September comes, and this feast of booths is still celebrated by Jews today. They're celebrating harvest, but they're also celebrating God's deliverance from uh, Egypt in the time when they were living in the, in the wilderness in these ho homemade uh, uh, tents, tabernacles, or, or booths, these sukkot, where they would, uh, they would gather and remember those times. So it was a huge celebration, and Jesus' brothers saw it as an opportunity. This is where you gain a following. This is where you increase your, your, your following. In verse 3 and 4, they say, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And there's a basic tension going on here. The brothers want a bigger stage. They want bigger opportunities bigger following. They look for ways for him to gain more followers, to get more traction. But Jesus deliberately rejects their strategy. He rejects their goals. He's not looking for the attention of the crowds. He's, in, he's content with the obscurity of Galilee because his mission requires it. In fact, in Matthew 6.1, he gave the following warning. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. The message is that we can do good things. We can do righteous things. But if our motivation in doing those good and righteous things is for other people to see us, for other people to think well of us, in order to get their attention, to get their applause, then Jesus says there's no reward. There's no reward in heaven for that. God, God doesn't get excited about even good things that are done for people's attention. Breaking patterns of selfishness involves doing things for God's approval instead of doing things for people's applause. It means we need to stop and slow down and ask, not just what should I do, but why do I do the things that I do? What's my motivation in taking this on, in serving in this way, in doing this thing that I do? What's driving that? Whose attention am I seeking? Whose glory is on the radar? Is it about my glory or God's glory? Am I trying to get attention for myself? Am I trying to look good? Alex Rodriguez, known as A-Rod, was at the height of his career. He was an incredible phenomenon. He had, in 2001, landed the highest paid sports contract in sports history. He was almost certainly already guaranteed a seat in the Baseball Hall of Fame. He could outrun, outbat, outplay anyone in the game. 
And yet, despite all of that, despite all that he achieved, he chose to take steroids. And people have asked, why would he risk all of that to, to do that at that point in his career? New York Times columnist David Brooks, in a sense, attributes it to I, me, mine. This is what he says. Self-preoccupied people have trouble seeing that their talents come from outside themselves and can only be developed when directed towards something else outside themselves. Locked in a cycle of insecurity and self-validation, their talents are never enough, and they end up devouring what they have been given. They end up devouring what they have been given because they can't see, first of all, it's been given to me from outside of myself, and the intention of this was not for me, but it was for something outside of themselves. You don't have to be a baseball Hall of Famer to get, Trump, get tripped up in this, right? You don't have to be a baseball Hall of Famer to be uh, have to deal with self-preoccupation with yourself. Ego will destroy careers. It will destroy marriages. It will destroy friendships. It gets in the way of the kind of uh, relational harmony that God calls us to. And seeking our audience in God instead of people frees us from that. It frees us from the selfishness that wants it for me, for my my applause for my attention. People who are content with obscurity can handle prominence when it comes, though. It's interesting what happens with, with, uh, with, with Jesus here, because although he holds back and is content to hang out in the Galilean countryside when it's required of him, because he isn't ruled by the crowds, because he doesn't crave the crowds, that when he is then called to, uh, to serve the crowds and to speak in front of the crowds, he isn't ruined by the crowds. Jesus, for example, after rejecting his brother's pressure to go to Jerusalem to further his career, actually did end up going. He waited for a time, and then he went. Verse 10 says, But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Jesus went up to Jerusalem to celebrate Sukkot, the, the Feast of Booths, first of all, because it was commanded in, in the Old Testament. He was required as a faithful Jew to attend. And in the middle of the feast, verse 14 records that Jesus began teaching in the temple. Jesus was content with obscurity, but when he was called upon to speak to the crowds, he didn't shy away from that. He wasn't... He, he wasn't afraid of that, but he wasn't ruled by that. He didn't crave it. When he was called upon to minister to the crowds, he did so. People who are content with obscurity aren't ruled by the crowd. They aren't ruined by the, the attention. They aren't uh, set over by, uh, by those things because even when they're standing in front of the crowd, they have their eyes on a different audience. They have their eyes focused on on God and his pleasure. When we seek our acceptance in God, it frees us from seeking it in people. It releases us from I, me, mine. And so Jesus shows us a life sold out to the glory of God. 
People who see God's glory have a different audience. They also have a different timetable, a different sense of time. And people who break free from I, me, mine have the patience to wait on God in a world where we just are constantly demanding it now. We want everything to be delivered with lightning speeds. But when we break free from I, me, mine, we have the patience to wait on God. This comes out again in Jesus' interaction with his brothers. Their motivation was the crowd, but it wasn't just the crowd. They had a different sense of time than Jesus. He had a different timetable. When his brothers tried to push him to seek a greater platform, Jesus responded in verse 6, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. It's a curious way to speak about time because it, it almost sounds like he's describing time as this purely subjective thing. Surely you look at your watch and we all have the same time. But he said, no, your time is different than my time. One of the reasons was, in, in Greek you had a way of referring to time as chronology as well as time as opportunity or chance or season. Here he uses the time for time as chance or opportunity. Time is season. And he's saying, my moment hasn't yet come, but you always think your moment is now. You always think that whatever it is that you're doing, it's got to be accomplished like yesterday. You have this constant fixation on, on, on the present, on, on the now, on things being accomplished according to your timetable. And our ego will always do that. Our ego always thinks the right time is now. It attaches ASAP to every thought, every prayer, every hope or expectation. It's that sense that we, we deserve it now. We want it now. We don't want to wait. We want it to be delivered up for us, and we want it to be delivered up for us on our timetable. The crowds at the feast were the same. Verse 11 says, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? They thought, if Jesus should be at the feast, he should be at the feast now. He should be at the feast when we want him at the feast. If he's going to speak here in Jerusalem, he should be speaking now. We shouldn't have to wait for him. We shouldn't have to, to delay. We want him there on our timetable. Jesus didn't see moments in time that way. In verse 8, he says, you go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. He had that sense of the moments in time in his life were not his to just demand, but to wait upon the Father, to trust in his plan, to trust that there was a sense of timing to even the good and right and righteous things in life. He was content to wait for the right timing. I wonder if you were to think over some of your prayers in the last week. Do you find yourself attaching a silent ASAP God to the things that you ask of him? Do you have a sense of urgency about all of the things in your life? All of the things that you want, you want them yesterday. Are you content to wait on God? 
Do you trust in his timing? I love the way David models this for us in the Old Testament. Almost impossible patience of, of David. He's been anointed as king. He has been chosen and set apart as king, and yet another man is still on the throne. Saul still rules in Israel, and although he is given opportunity after opportunity to, to seize the throne and take the throne, and people say, you deserve it. You, you've done all this. You should just take it. The time is now. And David is content to wait and to wait and to wait. In Psalm 31, he prays, I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hands of my enemies and from my persecutors. You hear it? My times are in your hands. Every moment of my life, every season and every opportunity is yours. You determine it. You direct it. I I want it now. Of course we want it now. But I have the patience and the faith to recognize, no, God, you're in control and your timing is right. My times are in your hand is not the first prayer that comes out of my mouth when I see terror on every every side, the way David describes it here. That's not our natural inclination. I want to shout, now! But this verse says, I wait on God and I wait on his timing because I recognize that although I want everything as soon as possible, God has purposes and timing and a plan that we can't see, we can't understand, but we trust that he is good. One commentator said about this verse, this is more than a statement about the passage of time. It reveals a deep dependence on God for each new moment, each new critical time in David's life. Do you have that sense of time? Or are you like the brothers that Jesus would say, for you, your time is always now. Your, doesn't matter what, what, where, where we are, when you look down at your watch, it's always now. Notice how, what David says in Psalm 37, 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. When I see something that's not right, something just screams inside of me. I want to deal with it. I want to deal with it now. I want answers. I want, I, I want change. I want to, to, to confront whatever it is and get it, get it behind me. But a life of faith requires that I trust God and I trust his timing. I see season. I see opportunity. I see a pace. I see God being in charge of, uh, of the times and the opportunities. When I went to Japan to plant a church, every plan that I had, every prayer that I offered to God was, now God, this is, you know, we've, we've, we've invested an awful lot in this. We, we want an answer. We, we want to see things happen. 
And it just seemed that for years, the, the message from, from God was, either you start trusting me or you're going to go crazy. Yeah, I, I've called you here to do something and it's going to be done in my time, not yours. It's going to be done according to my schedule, not according to yours. And if you keep, keep knocking and try to, try to uh, persuade me that you're right and I'm wrong, you will lose your mind. I learned during those days that sometimes the best prayer that I could pray was just, God, I can't see it right now. I, I, don't, know. I, I, don't, I don't know how this all plays out, but I trust that you do. I trust that you have a good plan. I trust that you are wise and good and faithful and just. And so I trust, trust you with the timing. And so I'm going to wait for you. Breaking free from I, me, mine means getting on a different timetable. means getting a different schedule. It means understanding that God is the Lord over the opportunity and the timing, and it's not us. But finally, people who break free from I, me, mine also have different words. They talk much about Jesus Christ. People who are stuck in I, me, mine talk about themselves. But people who break free are able to talk about another. They are able to talk about the one who sets people free. They talk much about Jesus Christ. We're told in verse 12 that there was much muttering about Jesus. And we've seen this all through chapter 6. There was complaining and grumbling. The crowd had showed up early to celebrate Succoth in Jerusalem, and they're kind of grumbling under their breath. They're saying different things, different theories, uh, different perspectives. But it says that none of them dared to voice those perspectives. Verse 13 just says, For fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Their words were ruled by people's opinions. They lived in fear of What's everyone going to think? And so they just didn't say anything. They, they couldn't openly speak. They couldn't voice what was in their heart, what they truly believed. They wanted to appear agreeable. And, and that's what our ego will do. Our ego will always muzzle our words and fit them in order to fit in. Our words will be dominated by our fear of people as long as we are dominated by that sense of ego or self, the I, me, mine, that, that can control us. This was an issue that came up repeatedly in Jesus' ministry. In John chapter 12, verses 42 and 43, he describes the problem. It says this, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, believing in Jesus. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For it says, they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They wouldn't voice their faith for fear of what people would say, for what people would think. And, and, and it shows the, the root problem 
It wasn't just that they weren't good with words. It wasn't just that they didn't know what to say. It wasn't just that they were naturally shy or quiet people. He gives the reason that they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They wanted people's attention more than they wanted God's. They wanted people's acceptance, people's praise, people's applause, more than they wanted to honor the one who made them, more than they wanted to honor the one who would set them free. In verse 18, Jesus says something similar. He says, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. See, the problem with so much of our words, and there's much that could be said, we, we could all say a lot of things about our own words, right? But one of the big problems with much of our words is that we're just seeking an audience for our own opinions. Or we use words to get people to like us or accept us. And then when we come in the Bible and it says that you're witnesses, that you are to testify to what Christ has done in your life, we hear the words, but it just doesn't seem to fit because we've never learned to speak of anyone other than ourselves. We've never learned to point to someone else, let alone to point to our Savior. It was Abraham Lincoln who said, to sin by silence when they should protest makes cowards out of men. But Jesus shows us that it's not just cowardice, it is selfishness. It's a self that will rule the words. It's a fear of people that gets in the way because we want their praise. We want their attention and their acceptance. And Jesus wants to set us free from that. Proverbs 29, 25 warns that the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. There's safety and protection when our words are governed by our Father, when our lives are under the control and in submission to the God who made us. It's a warning that walking in I, me, mine is a dangerous dance. It, it sets us apart from the safety that God would otherwise long to give us. Jesus shows us a different way. He, he describes the basic difference between him and his brothers in verse 7. Here he says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Sometimes people will come to me perplexed, thinking, why is it that such a nice, loving person like Jesus, who went around healing people and doing so many good things, could actually be crucified? Why, why would they want to kill him? And Jesus gives the answer here. Gives one of the answers at least. He testified, he said some things that were hard for people to hear. He confronted issues in people's lives that were difficult for them. His words brought conviction of sin. And, and that doesn't give us the, the, the freedom or the opportunity to just rip into people's lives insensitively, but it does speak to a willingness to speak for God, to speak into people's lives. He shows the crowd his attitude towards words in verse 18 when he says, The one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. 
In his words, Jesus sought the glory of the Father. Even with Jesus, it wasn't about I, me, mine. He kept pointing people to the Father. He kept testifying to his his goodness. He sought glory for another, and he invites us to do the same. He invites us to bring our words under his control and to use them not for me, to use them for him. Jesse Rice came to understand this. He knew that if he was going to bring his words in submission to Jesus and use them to bring glory to him, he was going to need to deal with his fear of what other people think. And so he wrote an open letter. And this is what he wrote. Dear fear of what others think, I'm sick of you, and it's time we broke up. I know we've broken up and gotten back together many times, but seriously, this is it. We're breaking up. I'm tired of overthinking my status updates on Facebook, trying to sound more clever, funny, and important. I'm sick of feeling anxious about what I say or do in public, especially around people I don't know that well, all in the hopes that they will accept me, like me, and praise me. Because of you, I go through my day with a cloud of shame hanging over my head, and I never stop acting. The spotlight's always on, and I'm center stage. And I'd better keep dancing, posturing, mugging, or else the spotlight will move. And all of this is especially evil because if I really stop and think about it and let things go quiet and listen patiently for the voice of the God who made me and the Savior who died for me, in his eyes it turns out I'm actually profoundly precious, lovable, worthy, valuable. So eat it, fear of what others think. You and I are done. Anybody else need to write a breakup letter? You just hear those words and you think of the different ways that that fear of what other people think gets into our heart controls what we do, warps what we say, and we realize we need to turn from it. To not only hear the words of a Father who loves us, a Savior who redeemed us, but to turn our words onto Him, to give God the glory that we would otherwise steal for ourselves. I don't know where I, me, mine affects you most, but I do know how destructive it can be. I do know how powerful the the selfish tendencies are. It broke up the Beatles, kills marriages, ruins friendships, steals dreams, robs our joy. Jesus invites us to pursue God's glory instead of our own. He invites us to a different audience to stop living for the praise of people and instead live for the pleasure of God. He invites us to a different timetable, to stop thinking that everything has to be now, yesterday, ASAP, and instead have the contentment to wait on God and his timing because we recognize that he's good and he knows what he's doing. He also invites us to use different words. Stop promoting ourselves 
and start lifting him up. Start giving the attention and the focus where it ought to have been in the first place. Let's ask God for the freedom from I, me, mine as we ask him for his help and as we look to him in all things. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would rescue us from our selfishness. Help us to live for your glory instead of our own. Help us to be content without the world's applause. You reward what is done in secret out of love for you. So help us to be content with that. Help us to wait and not think that we know better. Your plan is perfect and your timing is good. Father, help us to use our words to point people to you and set us free from the fear that so often stifles us. For we ask you in the name of our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.